Shirt Show. All right, let's go. Shirt Show! Talking Shirt! Shirt Show! Talking Shirt! Shirt Show! Talking Shirt! Shirt Show! Episode 15 of Shirt Show. We're talking with Eric from Night Owls in Texas. Let's go! You hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah, I got you. So how, how are you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just, uh, we're in the middle of two really big launches for some of our customers that are happening this week for like our web store stuff. And uh, I've been learning how to do spreadsheets for Shopify and we're like completely redoing our fulfillment department. So it's been, um, yeah, it's been pretty wild. How about you that guys? Sounds, that sounds fun. Yeah, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was like, that was something I wanted to talk to you about because I, I had just talked to a couple people in my last couple podcasts about um, fulfillment and how they're doing it. And like, cause there's uh, what I'm finding is, basically that a lot of people do it totally differently. Yeah. Um, are you doing it like more on demand or are you like printing stuff and shelving it and then pulling? Yeah, more of the latter. So we keep everything kind of bulk printed in, uh, in a different part of the warehouse. Yeah. And then as orders come in, we ship it out. But um, that print on demand model is something I've been thinking a lot about. And yeah. it's really tricky. Like yeah. having to keep all those like inventory, like the inventory of SKUs in stock to be able to be print on demand. That's like a multi-million dollar business that you have to have separate from the print shop, which is like yeah, kind I've of thought a lot about. You know what I mean, I thought a lot about this myself, and I think the best way would be as if we had transfers. But I don't know if we could pull that off. Like in other words, you know, you just yeah. have the, every color of Bella canvas or whatever shirt it's going to be in every size. And then when somebody orders a extra large dark Heather, then you just transfer the shit, but you would have to be really good at doing transfers, I guess, because it's yeah. like so, a lot cheaper to, to, to stock tra or to store transfers. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, like you're essentially like, it's kind of like going back to storing films, like everything just stored in file folders, you know what I mean? Like, and on one hand, uh, I think that's, that's awesome. Cause you can do that print on demand model so much more successfully. You don't have to worry about like, uh, the DTG systems and how those printers work right now. But, you know, uh, transfers can still have a shelf life. So mm -hmm. that's like a whole other thing too. Um, and then, you know, if you look at companies like Supercolor, which are doing really, really good at uh, kind of quick turn, full digital transfers. I have an idea of how they're doing it, but I don't know like hmm. the entire process yet. And I've been trying to like, become buds with them to like figure it out but uh i, I think it's all been super buzz. successful yeah I think it's a hybrid <laughs> you, i think it's a hybrid do you i mean i think they screen yeah. print uh something and then digitally image on top of it i think yeah it's what's opposite so they'll, do, opposite, they'll digitally right. print it and then print some sort of uh adhesive or blocker base mm. on top i mean i have like inks here from matsui that we've been beta testing even though i think that they're like they're officially available called Samurai inks and they are meant for adhesive or excuse me, meant for transfers without powder adhesive. So you can print like we've done a bunch of runs uh, on press uh, instead of like using a flat stock press or a Saturn or, or a Sakurai press. And we just load it like a normal t-shirt 
and it prints on our PET that we purchase. And you print the ink, you print the adhesive, and then you run it through the dryer. So I mean, it's so there's, no, there's no there's no powders. No powder. Yeah, it's That's pretty awesome. awesome. Yeah. yeah, that is awesome. How do you keep the how do you keep the transfer paper? registered or you know from not moving because you don't want to do you have you have uh, air pallets no so i mean we're just using like we're, we're a rock shop so we're using i mean we've done it on our mnr that we have too but um so it's on the honeycomb aluminum pallet just a little bit of light spray adhesive mm. um we use pet film which is a little bit different than uh paper um it's a little bit more stable especially once you like pre-shrink it and it gets acclimated to the room uh which is really helpful and I mean, it's all water-based ink. So for us, like we sort of already have like a leg up on, on how to use it, but um, you know, a one color transfer is three to four screens. So that's like the only like real like downside, but um, a little bit of spray adhesive, the PET doesn't melt as long as you don't keep your flashes too hot. And then hmm. like, um, it's sort of just works with any other like high solid uh, water-based transfer, not transfer technology, but meaning like the way that the ink any high solid ink works and how that transfers from screen to screen, not transfers. Right, right. Is that why um, your transfers have a shelf life? Is it because it's water-based versus let's say you did a plastisol? Even a plastisol uh, transfer has a shelf yeah. life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know what that shelf life is for either of them, but like uh, before we were doing water-based transfers, we were doing plastisol transfers. It's not very hard. It's, it's all about yeah. your uh, gelling property or your cure property in terms of like, how hot you run your dryer. Um, that's really the only thing that you have to really pay attention to. When we were doing plastic transfers, we just mixed the powder into the ink and that worked, uh, really? worked really well. But what would start happening is like after, I don't know, three months, four months, that ink with the powder mixed into it would start to turn into like a concrete brick. So like it, that also was not very like sustainable. So you um, were, if you were making screen printed transfers with plastisol, you were mixing the powder in with the plastisol? Yeah. What it, made it you definitely want to, what, worked. What, what made you want to do it that way? Was did, did somebody tell you or you're just like, I want to try this out? We're just trying it. I, I like out of all the processes in the shop, like using adhesive powder even now is like my least favorite thing. Yeah, yeah well that's that. the that's the worst part about doing transfers and that's kind of why we stopped doing them. It's just because like you have to powder them, but also like the downside of using powder is that like if you left any on the transfer paper and you went to transfer it on you would see like the oh, clear shiny. adhesive dots yeah. and shit. So yeah. it was just like, that to me was a downside. I was like, well, fuck this. Like, yeah, the PET film in. is like, the PET is a little bit better in terms of not having that big like reservoir of powder around your image, which is like yeah. really helpful and part of the reason why we switched to it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I like, I like doing transfers. I think it's like kind of fun, but the powder aspect is like what, what kills it for me. And I've yeah. been, you know, talking with like uh, other friends and stuff about uh, trying to figure out again, like how Supercolor is doing it. And I, I know the technology exists. Um, like we work with a couple vendors in China, whether it's like for promotional products or even screen printing equipment. And they'll send me like videos from trade shows of just like digitally printed transfers that are more or less on like a big, like, um, like solvent printer. And what it will do is it'll digitally print it, rewind it, print a white over it. And then in the same, not like it, it feeds it into a, an auto powder machine and it comes out ready to be transferred. Hmm. It's kind of incredible. And they're not really, they're not that expensive. We just haven't pulled the trigger because it's like, 
bringing in equipment like that without having any support of how to do anything is going right. to be really, really tricky uh, to figure it out. And you're saying that's what you'd move to as far as um, on de- printing on demand? Is that I think that's like an option that, that we're, we're sort of thinking of. But yeah. whether that's something that happens now or, you know, two years, I'm not quite sure yet. Well, that's kind of like back to the fulfillment thing. That's kind of like my wondering is how I want to do this because I'm doing it now the way that I know is the best quality for the customer is to just print in bulk or print in batches anyway. Yeah. So like screen printing everything, no transfers, no digital. Um, But it's hard because like you said, like you're either having a warehouse full of stuff or you're like, oh, let's print once a week, which is the model we're doing. So we're just doing like, oh, all the orders that came in last week, we're printing this week, we're shipping out um, over and over again. Yeah. But, uh, but the problem is too, is, is like you're gambling on that person to say like they're going to sell X amount and you're hoping that you're not going to get stuck with a bunch of shit on the shelf. Totally. And um, that, that's been a big thing for us too. I mean, we run like 25 or 26 different stores um, and some of the stores are for record labels. So they have like thousands and thousands of products. And we've been, we've been in our building now for a little over three years. And like, as soon as like we moved in, fulfillment had already outgrown the space that we had mm-hmm. allocated. So it's like constantly like shuffling it around. And also like, we just, we, in the beginning, we sort of just like took on any store. Now we're at that point in, in right. business where it's like, well, the space is really limited. So like, I don't want to have pallets of t-shirts and sweatshirts for a store that's going to sell one, you know, one a year. Uh, and so we've gotten a lot more selective and, and really the customers that we're working with, like are kind of turning stuff over and, and really. Get that's kind of, that's kind of pretty much like what's kept me doing this is like I said before, when we did just band stores like years ago, it was just shitty because I felt like we were sitting on stuff so much. And then recently when we started doing about a year ago, we started doing fulfillment again. It was kind of like, let's only do fulfillment, like true fulfillment for customers that are like really big that are going to sell shit. Like basically I know they're going to sell stuff. It's not somebody. How do you qualify them though? I mean, cause sometimes I guess you're taking a risk on it, but how do you I feel feel like, I feel like you're always taking somewhat of a risk because you're kind of gambling on that person being able to sell stuff. Um, but I, I feel like at first when I get somebody, I'm like, all right, let's do like the pre-sale method to see like how many you actually sell. Kind of test it, you mean? Yeah. And yeah. then and then once it gets to be like, okay, like at first it was like, all right, let's do a pre-sale for two weeks, see how much you sell. And then the next time it was like, all right, let's do let's make it a pre-sale for one week. And then it got to the point where it was just like so many orders that you're like, all right, let's just continuously stock this and go from there. But anybody who's a small person, I don't want to say small person, but like anybody who doesn't sell a lot, um, we basically just are like, all right, let's just do like, you know, a pre-sale store, like you were a school or anything else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's just my dilemma with the full fulfillment is like, do you have them like sign a contract or something that says that they're going to buy whatever stock you have? So you're not stuck with it at the end or you just kind of like, so we, I mean, we should do that, uh, but um, pretty much like the way that we run it is in some ways it's, it's very different than others. In some ways it's, it's very similar. Um, and in some ways there's like uh, good things that we do and then really like shitty things that we do that we're like, that we're trying to actively fix because like we realize it's not. I feel like we're in the same, I feel like we're yeah, in the we're, same boat, but you're ahead of me a little that's, bit. That's my every day. <laughs> so we like, 
we charge our customers for everything that gets put into the store ahead of time. So like, we're not like revenue sharing. We're not doing anything like that. Like their production orders are completely separate invoices than their, than their fulfillment orders. And okay. we also like part of it's us being lazy. Part of it's just like us recognizing that like there's better things that we can do with our time, but like, we're not like sitting around penny pitching. Like we're not like telling them, okay, you're going to get charged X amount for this shelf space for these materials that we're packing for this time that we're packing this right. time we're doing the cycle counts. We just charge like a flat percentage rate. And so like, if you were to come to me and say, I want to do fulfillment and we agree to do it, you would buy like, let's say you buy a hundred shirts in advance and then like it goes up on your store. Now this is like where it gets to the point where like we recognize this is not really the best model, but it works right now. Any orders that flow through our customer stores, our customers get the money hundred percent. And then we charge at the beginning of the month for the previous months, like freight, shipping, you know, picking and packing our, our percentage, if you will, um, and any other like miscellaneous charges. So like it works, it's not the best uh, system. I mean, there's plenty of times where we're like, we, you know, we're waiting for customers to pay like for these invoices for like two or three weeks. And at this point in time, I might be holding like a credit card bill for like $60,000 worth of postage. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it's not ideal in that situation. We've only really had one issue with a customer that like sold a bunch of stuff that didn't end up paying us. They did at the end, um, but like it was a band. It always was super, a, it's super always a band. Always a band. Oh, uh, they were really popular. They're here in Houston. Uh, they sort of like, I'm sort of immersed a little bit in terms of like their world and the people they work with. Uh, but they were like, oh, this isn't like talking bad about them. Like, they were like uh, drug addicts. And so they would disappear for months at a time, but then they would pop back up and place like, like seriously like $5,000 worth of shirt orders and they would sell in 15 minutes. And then they would just disappear. Like we couldn't get in touch with them. So it was like, <laughs> all right, this is, this is obviously not working. Uh, and then they ended up signing to the label that we actually do a lot of work with. And like that also got sort of weird with them. And so eventually we're just like, hey, like, if you want to do this, we have to collect the money up front. And yeah. if you don't want to do it, like you got to pay us X amount to like leave from they left. So yeah. Uh, yeah. That's pretty much the model that we used to do. And like when we first started, cause that's all we were doing was bands. And then, like I said, it got to the point where we were just like so sick of chasing money. It was like, yeah. they were always like, Oh, we'll pay it them to tour. And it never fucking happens. It's like, you have to hunt somebody down to get paid. Um, so then we kind of just started like, doing everything has to be paid up front unless you're like a big company that I can actually like go find you if I need my money. Yeah. Isn't that, um, isn't that what you said a minute ago? Isn't that for, for us anyway? And then you just said it, I was like, wow, we have that in common. And then Dylan, you, you confirmed it too with probably almost every shop. And that is, is like, we have systems here that are in place that were perfect at one time that maybe we grew out of and we're still using now. But yeah. like just the idea uh, and I, and with the, the thing is like, you know, it's broken. You're like, wow, we need to, we really need to work on that. But it's, it's, there's so many other things that are going on, you know, that you're like, you just let it be and you don't yep. work on it. And um, until one day, maybe that it just really explodes and you're like, oh fuck, you know, like we have to change this right now. But I mean, that's like, like our fulfillment department to the T. Uh, uh, like <laughs> we have basically like, so my, my wife and I started this business about a little over 10 years ago. And before we were doing Night Owls, we had another business that was like very, very similar. 
uh, still printing for band merch. Like, I mean, we were doing fulfillment then too. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Matt and Kim or like fake yeah. albums. Yeah. Um, so we were doing fulfillment for them and, and printing other stuff. And um, when Matt and Kim left, their, their management went to like a bigger like merch company, which made sense because they were growing like more than we could handle them. Uh, but so they, they left and we were like, this kind of sucks. We don't want to do this. Like, we don't want to have to like build reports and give people, uh, basically like we didn't want to have to be as detail oriented as we needed to be. Um, we weren't ready for that. And so that company dissolved, Night Owl started, and it took us about five years before we started doing fulfillment again. And uh, when we started, there's been two, or since we started, there's been two people at the helm of that department. Uh, one person left, second person kind of came in, cleaned up a bunch of stuff. But at that point in time, we were running like maybe four or five stores. Um, and then that secondary person, he left in June. And by the time that he left, we had about 24, yeah, 24 stores that we were running. And so like that growth of from four to 24, uh, you know, there are so many things in, in that time that needed to be cleaned up, needed to be figured out, needed to be reworked. And we just never really did it. And then when this person left, we realized like we're fucked. So like that's, <laughs> I, I've literally only been working in fulfillment for like, the past like two months. Um, myself and like two other people here trying to like completely change everything from the ground up. And like because of COVID, our fulfillment department's been so busy that like it's really difficult to completely change everything while just being like slammed at the same time. Um, but we're we're just like just about to like kind of like break through all that now, which is really exciting. Uh, but we have like two gigantic projects that are launching on one on Wednesday, one on Thursday. And uh, we'll see how well those, those systems work. <laughs> I've always thought like, when do you, when do you fix that? Do you wait till you slow down? So in other words, like you're like, okay, well we're slow in January. So cool. We'll, we'll fix it then, you know? And, but in the meantime, we're going to suffer through this forever X amount of months, you know, do you wait till you're slow and then fix it? Or you just, do it, you know, and get it done. I like, kind of like when we, uh, I remember one time we ordered some equipment. We absolutely needed it. Right. And it, I think for whatever reason we were, it was delayed because on our end, because of uh, construction and then the dryer shows up in August or something and we have to then like install it. And that, which means sure. we have to turn, take, turn our other dryer off for whatever, um, 16 hours or something like this while they've turned this other one on and it killed our production, you know? And so, I said, I'll never do that again. Like if I ever ordered a dryer, I'm fucking doing it in January. I'm never going to do it th then. But at the same time, once we had the dryer going, it like saved us. And so I don't yeah. know. It's like, when yeah, do you work I mean, on projects like that? You know, you're tearing it down now and you're totally. busy. How do you, how do you, how do you choose? A lot of these things that we're doing now are things that we've been trying to do for the past three years. So it's like, it, it, and we were getting resistance from the person that was sort of in charge of that because like, Oh, we're too busy. There's not enough time to do it. Like, so-and-so didn't have enough time to like figure this out. Um, and we, just, we couldn't wait anymore. So it was like, if we didn't do it, um, especially with like holiday season, whatever that means this year uh, coming up, like we would have been fucked. So we really had no choice. Um, and, and honestly, like with our business too, uh, we don't really have slow months. We have slow weeks, but over the past like two or three years, uh, our, our slow time has sort of disappeared, which has been like, insane um and i still don't fully understand it i think it's a little bit of like we have such diverse clients that, that operate in different areas that it really helps um, yeah. but also 
while still doing a lot of band merch and bands are now touring outside of outside of COVID, they were touring kind of at mm. weirder and weirder times. And there was not really a traditional tour cycle before COVID hit, in my opinion, anymore. And uh, plus, bands they were had, going out. plus they were touring maybe internationally, you know, and so not just, yeah. not just so that gave it, you, it, that opened up markets for you. Well, and also with fulfillment too, like bands would come off to where we would get goods to put into their stores. And now all of a sudden there's people hopping on to order the stuff. Uh, and, and I feel like a lot of the clients that we work with with fulfillment are sort of acting a little bit smarter than some of our traditional clients, if you will, and really like thinking months ahead about like what they want to do and how they want to kind of push things for new collections or, um, you know, really optimize like certain times. And so with fulfillment, that's really affected our production as well, because it just it just keeps churning out more jobs. The more we sell in fulfillment the more that we need to restock and replace items. So what did you, what did you do before Night Owl? You said you were doing stuff uh, with your wife? Yeah, so I mean, uh, my wife still works here. Uh, and uh, we had a company called I Heart You, which was like, we were screen printing my parents' garage. We were uh, booking like punk shows and no, nothing else, that's it. So uh, the only thing that's really changed is that like when we started Night Owls, we we closed I Heart You, stopped booking shows because we realized that like our focus, we wanted to be doing better prints and, and kind of focusing on that. Um, we took a partner on when we started Night Owls who doesn't work here anymore. We bought them out probably seven years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, so the only thing that's really different is a, a different name and we're not booking shows uh, anymore. Is it called Oh, go ahead. Go, no, I was going to say, did you guys ever have anything to do with Fest in Gainesville? Mm. A ton, yeah. Because we went to Fest 9, and I could have swore there was something there that was like Night Owl, or you guys had something there or something. Yeah, we, we did a ton of stuff. I mean, pretty much from Fest 5 till Fest 11, we went every year, and then like we were pretty entrenched with it. Um, we had a lot, a lot of friends that, that, would go and play and even like the inner circle fest like yeah. we were pretty tight with like those guys um and then like stuff kind of got weird uh there's no like weird feelings anymore but it was just like we sort of got like night owl sort of got pushed out in a way that like i felt like really uncomfortable with so mm -hmm. um that started to kind of like change our perception well the funny thing is yeah. is like before we were going to do this podcast i was like i just had in the back of my mind i was like i kind of want to ask him about fest but then i was like how do I know that they were at Fest? Like, I feel like that was just something that was in my mind. And then I started, I like Googled it before this and I was like, fuck, I was like, I can't find anything with them related to it. And then I saw that like Commonwealth Press and I was like, I know Commonwealth Press was doing it because I think I got like a koozie at Fest or something with them. Sure. And then- And, and they uh, kind of took over our role of like what we were doing. So right. like, again, like, you know, this is not, there's no like ill will towards them or any of the other like print shops that were on it. But what started happening is that like, we would donate, not donate, but sort of, we would do trade uh, for like sponsorship. And yeah. what would start happening is that like, we were, you know, the upper class tier of sponsorship and all Commonwealth Press and like another print shop are also upper tier sponsorship. And like my argument was like, well, you wouldn't go to Paps and be like, hey, we're gonna bring on Budweiser, uh, and like, you know, you're gonna co-sponsor. Like, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, mm -hmm. And so we we definitely like 
myself and Tony, who runs the fest, like definitely got into like disagreements about that. And at that point in time, we're like, all right, I think we're going to back off. Um, and then like Fest 11, I think Fest 11 was the last year we went. Um, my band that I was in, like we started like kind of fizzling out and it, not that it wasn't fun to play anymore, but like I never wanted to play a festival where like we would show up and there'd be like four people in the room. That just like always seemed super, super lame to me. Um, and so we were starting to get to that point and I was like, all right, we're going to back out. Uh, and then a lot of our friends bands that were going like either broke up because people were like sort of aging out of that or, um, you know, they were having disagreements yeah. with their bandmates or they were like reaching a different level to where like they couldn't play fest every year. And so like fest 11, we were walking around. We we're like, we don't recognize anybody here. And this is real weird for us. Yeah. Uh, for, the, for, for the people who don't know, fest is like a huge punk rock festival in Gainesville every year. And I knew about it back, like I said, this was probably 10 years ago was Fest 9, I think. Because um, they were going to do 19 this year, I think. And then they ended up yeah. having to do it next year. But anyway, like, it's crazy because to me, I didn't know, like, how it would be. And I went, like, as a company trip with everybody sure. here. And we were like, oh, let's go to Fest. And, like, because back then we were doing nothing but bands. And it was like, all right, let's go, like just hang out with bands all week and like try to like get their business or whatever. Um, and then we got there and it was fucking insane. Like there were so many people and it's like, what it's basically like a town square kind of thing, like a whole street where like every bar yeah. has shows going on. So like it was a college town. So there's yeah. a million bars. And like, what's funny too is that like, you know, if you go to fast, people are in like party mode and yeah, fast is known for like, hard drinking yeah bands well that and, the funny thing the funny thing about that is like none of us drink really and it's not like a sure. straight edge thing it's just like we just don't really i, I, I don't either so it was and they had they had so much fucking pbr when we were there like they had those like big pbr like uh like can coolers they're huge and there was yeah. just can't like beer everywhere like at street corners it was just like oh grab some pbr grab but some PBR. what's crazy though is that like the city of gainesville doesn't even bat an eye at it because like that's where um florida state university is so like when they have football games it's like fest pales in comparison to that um but yeah so there's like one street and on this one street there's probably like uh i don't know if anybody's ever been to like south by southwest in austin it's kind of similar where it's just like bar after bar after bar and it being like a, a punk rock, you know, uh, festival that was rooted around no idea, which was like based in Gainesville. Uh, they pretty much like used every bar, every nook and cranny. Yeah, and I mean, like, real. The, it was crazy. I mean, there's, um, there's some of the bands that we work with now that we were friends with them. Like, I mean, like I threw like a show in our hotel room in the Holiday Inn. I mean, like there's a band called AJJ that has like a bootleg like LP of that session of them playing in my hotel room. Um, I mean, there was like house parties all the time. Um, yeah, it was crazy. One of the craziest things I ever saw <laughs> was a three bedroom apartment at Fest with like, like no joke, 400 people at a fucking hardcore house show. And when the cops came in, we were inside and one cop decided to like brave it. And he's just like trying to wade through this crowd with like a flashlight. And there's pictures uh, of it and video and stuff. And finally they got the band to like break it up. And it was just like a stream of 45 minutes of just like people leaving the second story yeah. apartment. It was uh, crazy. It was we didn't get, we didn't get a single sale from going there. 
Yeah, um, I, honestly, just, you, we didn't either. So like, yeah. you well, it was just anything. it was just a fun time. Like it was a fun thing to do, and it was all week. Um, yeah. But it was funny too because like we were obviously from upstate New York, and when Fest was happening, it's kind of cool. it's in the fall, right? Or it's usually like fall. Halloweenish. Like October. yeah, so like it's funny we get to our hotel, which is like I don't know, like three miles away. So every day we went, we had to walk, um, but. There was a stabbing, I think, in our hotel that, like, the second day we got there. And there was, like, blood trail we could see, like, where the dude got stabbed. (laughs) And we were like, cool, we're in a good place. And then uh, they had a pool out back, and nobody was at the pool except for this, like, couple. There was, like, a couple and, like, their friend, and they were, like, in the pool. And then we were like, hell yeah, we're going to swim because it's, like, it was, like, 75 or something. Right, right. And we were swimming, and we're, like, started talking to them. And they're like, you guys are from the north, aren't you? We're like, yeah. They're like, yeah, we're from Canada. So it's like the only northern people were the only ones that were swimming. Everybody else had like hoodies on. Yep. When when there was one time, like again, Gainesville being a college town, there's a lot of like like shitty like motels. Uh, all the nicer hotels are like outskirts of town. Yeah, this was uh, not a nice hotel. Yeah. No, uh, but we checked into our hotel and, or excuse me, into our motel, and we like got in there and we we were like sharing rooms with like some friends. And so like, we got our keys and we like went in and then we're like, wait a minute, this is like weird. Like there's stuff in here. Like it doesn't really look like it belongs to anybody. And it's just like, we're in somebody else's room with like their passport and like a bunch of other shit just like hanging around. It's like, all right, this is, this is fucking weird. And then they were like, oh yeah, we overbooked you. Like, sorry, we shouldn't have, shouldn't have given you those keys. It was like, okay. So uh, <laughs> just we, put we, people in rooms. We, yeah. Yeah. It was very, very strange. <laughs> while while yeah, we're on the topic um, of uh, punk rock music, you got me listening to "Against Me." So, oh, nice! Thank you for that. Yeah, of course they're they're one of uh, one of, if not my favorite band. In like, uh, I've been a fan of theirs since two thousand three, and sort of like forced my way into friendship with them, probably much to like their disapproval. Uh, but uh, it's cool. I mean, we're we're all buds. Like we print for them. Uh, I talked to Laura like almost daily at this point. Um, so yeah, it's cool. Uh, they they rule. It's funny because we just saw. I've seen them a couple times. So we just saw them at the Every Time I Die Christmas show, and I think we were sure. talking about it because you were like, their merch got delayed or something. Yeah, yeah. So like, uh, <laughs> it was like six boxes of merch, and it like got lost or held up at a station, and so like. You know, they're, they've been around long enough that they're like, all right, it is what it is. But it's like you, like, I can't help but feel like terrible, although it's like completely yeah. out of my control. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and even like with them, we would get like dis- disappointed texts, but um, they were like definitely kind of stern, like, hey, maybe we shouldn't do it this way again. And it's just like, well, how else do you want me to ship? boxes to you that aren't going to cost you ten thousand dollars to ship right so that's like the worst i feel like any of us can relate to that and it's like the worst feeling ever when you have a customer that's not even just a customer it's like in your eyes it's like a really good friend or somebody you really don't want to disappoint and then there's just nothing you can do like it's totally out of your hands like ups lost a box or fucking it got delayed because of weather with ups or Right. whatever and it's like that fucking sucks so bad yeah we had that yeah. happen uh it wasn't a friend it was just a it was a customer and we shipped out it was going to new york and we shipped it and it was they needed it for a certain date uh and um we shipped it ahead of time so we were we were good everything was gonna be fine and then they we got a notification so i was lost 
we're like, oh. And so we ended up, um, we were like, okay, well, fine. We're just going to reprint it, you know, our, whatever, eat it and reprint it and ship it out again. Ordered yeah. all the blanks and made the screens and went to set up. And then we got a phone call that it was found, not by them, but by somebody else. It was delivered to the wrong address or whatever. And they had it and then they was, it was nearby. And so they ended up getting it somehow. So we didn't have to reprint it. Although we did buy all the blanks again and all that shit, but you know, like what do you do? Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and like speaking of fast too, like one of our biggest customers that we have now, um, like definitely top three, uh, they got our name from a flyer at Fest, and, uh, it's uh, like a friend of ours now, but he like represents this company called okay player, which is the roots record label. And, uh, and so now we do all their stuff and th there was a time where we shipped something to like a big festival they were having and it got lost and got delayed. It's like, well, fuck now, like now we're going to like disappoint the roots and like, we're going to be in big trouble because of this. And like, thankfully we were able to like, they were doing this big block party in Philadelphia. And it was, like, They're going to tell Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so like, thankfully we were able to get somebody to like courier it from New York to Philadelphia because it's not like crazy far and it made it like five minutes before they were supposed to play so it was like like really almost almost screwed it big time there but uh yeah <laughs> is that from stuff. a flyer like you you passed out flyer you hung up flyers at the at the fest or I mean, they, they they have like a like during registration they would have a kind of like a trade show if you will oh, so like okay. record labels and clothing lines and and whatever and we always had a booth there and uh we also had like we, we made a lot of merchandise for a long time. So it was like, we had full control of like what would go in like promo tote bags and stuff. So there'd just be like night owls stuff. Well, that's what I said. Day. Like it works obviously. Cause like when I was there, I saw it all over the place and I was like, there was like one year. Uh, and actually like uh, our, our friend Walt, he, he ran a company called uh, I love imprint. And he actually just passed away like, literally like two days ago, which was terrible. He's been dealing with cancer for a long time. Uh, but there was like one year that I contacted Walt and I was like, Hey, like we kind of want to do this like goofy thing for like our friend. We want to make a face mask of his face and hand them out all over fest. And so for that entire weekend, there was like 20,000 copies of our friend's face, like a, like a paper mask with a rubber band and people were just wearing them all over the place. Uh, and so we would do like stupid shit like that. And uh, yeah, it was, it was super fun. One of my favorite memories from Fest was uh, there was a Chinese place on the way from our ho our hotel to where, where all the shows were happening. And sure. uh, me, me and Chris kind of had this thing. Well, we had this thing still could, I guess, but anytime we go anywhere, that's like the, that's got those like um, temporary tattoos, you know, like some places have like shitty places have them out front. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to buy these and I get to, I get to say on like wherever they go on your body, <laughs> basically. And he's, he always agrees to it. So anyway, we, we went to this Chinese place and they had one of those out front and they were like the cheesiest, shittiest tattoos. It was like a heart on fire and like nice. a skull with like dice or something. And there was like one other one. And uh, I was like, I'm going to buy three of these. And they were large. I was like, I'm going to buy three of these and I want them all to go on your neck. And this is like, this is like day two of the full week of being there. And he was like, all right, whatever. So I bought all three, went back to the hotel room, put like one here, one here, and one here. And then the whole time at Fest, he was walking around with like the douchiest neck tattoos. Um, and somebody, I think there was like a Taco Bell or something on that street. And we, yeah. ended up, we ended up going in and somebody's like, oh man, sick tats or whatever. He's like, how long did that take? And Chris was like, without even flinching, was like a couple hours, couple sessions. 
And it was just like, <laughs> it was just so funny because they were like the dumbest fucking tattoos ever. Um, but yeah, we're, we're getting off, off screen printing topic. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was fun. It was a, it was a good time. Gainesville was it fun. Was. The night owl's yeah. name, does that come from, because you started out of the garage and you were, I don't know, you're working at night. Yeah. I mean, it, it truly did. And then also, um, again, kind of going back to fest, like there, there's a friend's band called bridge and tunnel that was on no idea. And they had a song called night owls. And I just always liked that term a lot. Um, and then coupled with the fact that like we were typically working at night just because like Houston's fucking hot during the day. So that's sort of what we were doing most, most days. So it just sort of, sort of worked. Um, just kind of took off from there. I like how you secretly put a, like a night owl logo behind your head on the chalkboard. Oh, we were like, that's uh we're trying to like draw <laughs> out something for a sticker. Uh, so it's, not as cool as, uh, as you think it would be. <laughs> Do you guys have like a ton of competition in Texas? Because I keep bringing this up that like every fucking shop I talk to is from Texas. Um, I mean, yes and no. It's something like I, I kind of like grapple with a lot. It's just like we're, we're friends with a lot of shops here. I mean, like friends with uh, printed threads, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, and also like sort of friendly with industry in, in Austin. Um, and then a couple of like print shops here in town. But um, I mean, screen printing is one of those weird industries. You guys know it's like right around me in any given direction. There's probably like, I don't know, 10 different shops. So it's like yeah. uh, some of well, them, I like, know, some of them I don't. Well, it's like what Brett was saying is like in his actual like building complex or whatever, there were four other print shops. Oh, crazy. Like I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, like he said, you yeah. had to drive past three shops to get to his if you were picking up crazy. an order. Yeah, I um, <laughs> like I, I don't, don't know. Have I, that mean, problem. I I think that we I, I hope that we've done like a good job of like differentiating ourselves and like and, and sort of like what we do, um, not like in the screen printing world, but then also I, I kind of grapple with this a lot. Where like I I'm not from Houston. I've lived here for close to like uh, 15, 16 years, something like that. And like it's not my favorite place in the world, but it works really well for the business now. I'm like very anchored here because of, of the business. Um, I don't know if our business would necessarily like work in other parts of the country. And, Why is that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's like not terribly expensive. It's the fourth largest city in the U S so there's like tons of like diversity in terms of like what is available in the city. Uh, and we're centrally located. So it's really easy to like ship stuff to both coasts, like pretty, uh, That's true. You know, yeah. pretty uniformly. I didn't think about that because that's like something with us is that we were like a national company. Like we don't do local much at all because I wouldn't be here if I did. Um, sure. But yeah, I've never thought about that. Like being in the middle. Cause for me, it's like, if I have a customer in California, it takes five days. Right. Like it's just what it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, most of our business is outside of Houston too. In fact, like I would say probably like 75% of what we do is outside yeah. of Texas. And that's all just like, punk rock kids for the most part like well that's what helps you with all the competition in texas basically yeah 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 i mean um there, there's you know shops that we sort of that we view as like competition here in, in houston that i feel like we are not always but sometimes like kind of buying for the same jobs or right. customers will jump from people to people but like um you know what we're doing most most shops not even in houston just in the country like kind of kind of can't do it um, which is a really good way to like differentiate ourselves uh, mm -hmm. from 
a lot of places. So. Well, especially with like the water-based stuff. Exactly. Do you find that you have a lot of trouble with water-based being as hot as Texas is? No. I mean, when we started, it, it definitely gave us like a lot of problems. I mean, probably the same problems that every single person like who's ever worked with water-based from Plastisol has ever dealt with. Um, but I don't know if we're just like stupid or like very, very stubborn, uh, but we just worked through them and figured it out pretty much. I mean, mm-hmm. We Why? like to joke that we work harder, not, not smarter. <laughs> That's like what yeah. we do, unfortunately. Yeah. Why, why did you decide to go that route? Like why water-based over Plastisol? Um, discharge was like a big part of it. And like we had been experimenting with discharging pretty early on in, in my screen printing career before Night Owls. And a lot of that was just like, well, we work with a lot of bands. Bands want black shirts with white print. Right. So if we can have one screen instead of two, that's yeah. what I want to do. Um, and then it just got to be the more we thought about it. And I've said this a couple of times to you, but like the rest of the world uses water basing predominantly. Um, and like in my like naive brain, I was like, if we start using water base, we're going to start getting calls from like Nike and Adidas and all these other places. And like, uh, those calls never came, uh, surprisingly. Um, but, uh, I don't know, it, it helped push us. And the more that we learned about it, the more that we sort of like realized that, well, this is hard, but if we could figure it out, like the rewards are, are pretty awesome. Um, and so I think that's, that's pretty much like what we did and that's been like my big drive it's just like i really want to be putting out like really awesome prints i want to yeah. i look at this at this job and like our industry is like a craft and i want to be really good at it 100 so constantly yeah. striving for that mm-hmm. no i agree yeah and this i don't know if this is more of a question but it's it's kind of like a statement for me i guess it's just like we we want to be able to do both and i'm trying to do both as well as humanly possible Um, but I feel like with water base, we say we do water base and we do, but like, it's rare that I do a design that's like just straight, like not discharge, but actual, just like water base inks. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's always, Oh, we're going to do water base. Yeah. We're going to do discharge under base with soft hand plastic on top, or we're going to do water base, but it's only going to be on, you know, like black water base on a hoodie, or it's going to be, you know, dark color water base inks on a light colored shirt. It's like, it's, I, it's rare that I ever choose to do like just straight water base inks on like a darker color shirt because of the fact that for me, anytime I've ever tried it, it's been like super heathery or like just isn't yeah. opaque or anything like that. So what would you say to me if I, you were like, try this or do this or stop being an idiot? No, no, not, not at all. I mean, it's, um, you know, first and foremost, like it's really hard. It's, it's really, really hard. There's a lot of things that like you have to sort of sort of think about pre-production and post-production wise that you may not necessarily like be ready to jump in right away. Um, for me, and, and I will shout this from like any hilltop I can, the biggest thing for us, like we were already very interested in water-based and we're struggling like really hard to make it work to go full water-based until we found... Um, Mark Coudre's virus mastery class. Yeah. And we don't use virus ink here. Um, when we took that class, we were thinking about switching over, but um, I, we, we don't use it. Uh, but the principles for that class taught us like, 
we're, we're, they were the missing pieces to like every problem that we were having. Well, I feel like that's what I have is I just have like a few missing pieces. Like, I feel like we yeah. can handle it. We can do it. It's just there. I don't do it every day. So like when I do it, I'm like, Oh, I wish I could have done this better. I wish I had more time to play around with this. Or you just look at it as you're like, Oh, I could do the same style print this way that I know how to do. And then we do it and it comes out awesome and we get it out the door, but that doesn't encourage me to, try the harder way you know or the yeah i mean it's like i said earlier i don't know if we're stubborn or stupid but like it definitely like we always go like the hardest route so what did you came back from what did you get from that class so it's not so much like the print um like we, we didn't necessarily get like how to use the ink what we got was the science behind it. like why things are happening like helping explain why we're seeing like ink dry in the screen or um like uh you know why our ink is like starting to clump up very very quickly and, and sort of become more putty like why it's evaporating more so the class really helped us understand the science portion of like what's going on um on press as well as through the dryer uh and like also in terms of building the ink that's that's the biggest thing with water base that i don't think a lot of people understand is that like there are ready for use inks but that's, I'd say, probably the biggest difference from Plastisol is that there's so much of it that can be modified to your specific project and your specific, you know, needs as a shop. Um, Aquarius is doing a really good job of, like, making ready-for-use ink. But, you know, you, like, even, like, when we were testing it out, we still were modifying it based off of our location and our, our presses and what we're trying to build. And, or right. not build, sorry, what we're trying to print. Um, and, like, you, you know, you might have one or two like how many whites do you have in your shop yeah no i know well i have yeah i have like my regular plastisol i have performance i have u-base for my discharge underbase and then i have discharge white and then i have like high solids water base white so yeah there's five at least yeah i mean we probably have like six to ten different whites in varying opacities you know what I mean? It's like, but we're building our ink specific to our project so that like we can kind of control the output a little bit better. So I have a question. So you have six to, to 10 different whites. We used to, uh, plastisol wise, we had a bunch of whites at one time. We had five that we would go to, but who is making the decision as to what white you're going to use? Like, is it, is it called out pre-press on a order form? And so when, like, for example, when it gets to press, they know what white to go get or to make or to build or whatever, however you put it, you yeah, know, like who knows so, that who's making those decisions. Uh, so, you know, my, my wife is really immersed in the ink room and the art world. Like that's like what she does here. She oversees both of those departments where I handle a lot more uh, of the sales and kind of the bigger picture stuff. So she is a lot more hands-on in production um, generally than I am. Uh, I used to be, and then at the beginning of this year, I sort of started focusing on, you know, bigger picture, doing, doing the whole visionary type bullshit. So she's the one typically calling that out. Um, but we also, I mean, like, now our guys, like, kind of know, like, per project, like, what it's supposed to look like and, and sort of, like, what the, what the end result will be 100% determined by, like, what type of ink that we're using. So well, that happened. For the most part... And that that was like uh, similar to to our story in that you know the, the whoever was the press operator knew what white to go get, but we ran into issues of sometimes uh, well which one do I choose? Look, I've got 
I've got hoodies, which are this material and, and t-shirts, which are this, and also some other t-shirts, which are that. And so yeah. one white didn't work on all for plus all wise, one white didn't work on all three uh, different materials or, uh, we got a new material and which white do I choose? You know, like it was a nightmare having five. And so I was like, fuck that. We're having two. And, um, it worked, yeah. th- that works now for pl- plastisol, but how would it, how does that work in your shop when you have six or se- six or 10 or whatever, who's making, as you said, your wife, so, is, but yeah, yeah. I mean, so my wife's name is Val and, uh, mm-hmm. and I mean like she oversees, we have two full-time people in our, ink, in our ink department. So one is pretty much making new formulas and one is like constantly refilling. They're there. They're dedicated all day to an ink department. Yeah. Yeah. Lately, well, like we've actually, we've actually shifted one of the ladies responsibilities. She's helping a lot more like in, uh, in finishing. Cause like, that's also another department much like fulfillment. That's sort of like been broken for a long time that now we're trying to get it all fixed and, and, uh, processed and, and organized. Um, but, but still like my wife is making those call outs and really like, yeah, we have a million different whites, a million different blacks, a million different every color possible. Um, but when it comes down to it, we sort of have like, we have a discharge white, we have a like less opaque high solid and a very opaque high solid. And so it's just a matter of like, kind of picking what's gonna work best in the project. But also some of it comes like with the knowledge of knowing, and this is where it gets tricky with water base is that your colors are greatly going to change on the age of the ink, how long it's been out, your humidity in the room, um, the viscosity of the ink, how fresh the ink is, what mesh count you're using, what squeegee you're using. So it's like endless variables that you have to kind of narrow down, uh, you know, just like with Plastisol, but there's a lot more that you have to factor into the equation to sort of figure out like what's going to give you the correct outcome for the product. So does it happen often where you get on press and it's not the result you wanted and you've got to change something? You know, uh, like not as much as it used to because Val and her team sort of understand how to build the inks a lot more um, accurately than, than we did like in prior years. So that's not really too much of a problem. Um, you know, it does happen where we might pull uh, an, an ink off the screen, but, and, and we'll usually drop it down from like, you know, we'll go to the next Pantone down or something like that. But it's not necessarily because it's like the wrong opacity or anything. It's more just like, the color is slightly off for what we're trying to do. Yeah. I feel like that's the same with Plastisol or, yeah. you know, anything else. It's just yeah. tweaking it and getting it right to what you think it should be. But yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things like I've kind of struggled with. I'd like to, like I said, I, I don't want to be that guy who's like, I only do water-based or I only do Plastisol. I just feel like it's important to do what's best for the customer for that specific artwork and that job and what brand shirt it's going on and everything else. So I don't know. I just like to learn more um, about it, I guess. But I feel like I just need to do, like you said, like kind of do more of those classes that are available and get the science down first and figure out why I should choose one over the other. And I would say too, like, I mean, I, this is kind of biased because like, I like Mark Coudre is like a, a, a coach of mine. And so I work with him a lot, but like that virus class was truly eye opening. And then like as a gift, um, because he saw like, kind of what we were trying to do in terms of the technical aspect of printing. He gave me another class that he had built called Halftone Mastery that it's meant for Plastisol. But again, it goes into so much information that it's like, in my opinion, it's sort of like lost art or it's like the people that know it are, you know, Richard Greaves and, and uh, like Jesse Greenwood or Ray Greenwood and, the, the, and Mark Gervais and stuff. The people you see on the board that have been around that have been printing since the, like, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, like, 
all stuff that was sort of figured out years and years ago that no one is really like talking about because the technology came in and, and replaced a lot of stuff. But I mean, color theory, the way that separations work, the way that your ink, your squeegee, uh, your, your mesh all like work together, it's all physics. And so like these classes are really, really in depth. Like it took me, I think close to two and a half months to go through half to a mastery. That, um, it's, like, it's so intense. Are those classes, are those online classes or what do you, what do you Yeah. About? So like you, you buy them, I think like the virus class is like a thousand dollars or something. And like when I took it, it culminated in like a trip to Chicago at MNR with like virus and stuff. And so I assume at some point, maybe they'll do that again, but, but, you know, but um, it's they're online classes and they're very much just like PowerPoint presentations. So it's kind of like, it's kind of a lot because Mark has a very like, kind of docile, like calming voice almost. And so it, that that's partly like what took me so long, plus a lot of the information just like so over my head um, because it's areas of the shop that I'm not proficient in. But again, like I really enjoy learning about like the background of things, like knowing things at the surface level is cool, but then like truly having an understanding of the science yeah. behind it, I think is really exciting. Yeah. And I feel like you should at some point, I feel like it's an obligation yeah. that you have as an owner. Like if you want to grow your company and grow your, like you said, it's a, to, to us, I feel like it's, it's important to say that it's a craft and not just like, you know, we're just bulk trying to push it out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I feel like everybody should check that out. I'll try to find the links to stuff like that and put that in the description cool. of this episode so people can look it up. Like it sucks. Cause I don't, I don't want to sound like that's what you have to do to like move forward. Cause I mean, the information's out there. I mean, plenty of people will talk about it or say it. It's just that like, I know for me, it just really helped. And so if anyone's yeah. really serious about water base, but we're even not like just doing plus half tone mastery was incredible. Um, and yeah, I don't know. There, there's not necessarily like, a giant conscious reason why we decided to go water base. I just felt that like, you just like to do everything way was, fucking harder. Well, that, and also, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just like really, really dumb apparently. Uh, and a lot of it too, uh, actually I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, like there, there was two instances when we were sort of go, well, one instance we were going into water base that uh, a rep from, um, Rutland who's still there, uh, was like, you're not going to do water base. No one's doing water base. And it was like, fuck you, we're going to do it. So that was the first thing. And then like our, our partner that we had at the beginning of the business, he, he still prints. He's like a flat stock printer. Um, and like, you know, it was uh, a business divorce that like wasn't super, super, uh, happy. And so like one of the things that he like said to Val and I is like, well, I do something that like is really special and people will pay a lot of money for Like you guys don't. And so like that to me, that, that spike like is what drove a lot of the fire to be like, no, like we're going to do something really cool and something different from a lot of people. Um, and yeah, I, I oh, think yeah. we've done it, but then uh, it's really easy to get, to get humbled by like, you know, printers in Indonesia or uh, India or Bangladesh uh, and just seeing like what they're able to create with like their, their table prints and wooden frames. So it's like, we're not doing anything <laughs> special. I know I see that shit all the time like on Instagram or all these places where it's like they're doing I can't remember exactly what's called but the style where you're picking the screen up and you're moving from the peg to the peg or yeah it's a table frame yeah so seeing the shit that they're producing like you said it's just like like we have autos and shit and you see some of this stuff and you're like you're proud of what you do and then they're like these dudes are in like a fucking long ass hut 
yep. just like making the, yep. these amazing prints. And you're like, God damn it. <laughs> there, there's another video that you can find on YouTube too. It was like an MNR series uh, that Mark Gervais did. And I think it was at like maybe an ISS show or maybe it was just an MNR. I don't know. Uh, but it's, it's sort of like intro to high solids water-based printing. Um, and, you know, I don't know if you guys know or if anybody's listening, but like Mark Gervais like runs a huge, uh, you know, screen printing factory in China. Like, I think I, I would probably venture to say one of the biggest in the world. And uh, and he goes over this, like, I think it's like a seven or nine part, like, video series talking about sort of what he learned going there. And he talks about, you know, he walks into this factory and he sees people running around with, like, little, like, uh, heat guns, curing shirts. And he's just like, that's so stupid. Let's just get flashes. But what he didn't realize is that those heat guns are forced air. And so for water base, that's exactly what you need because it's evaporating the moisture instead right. of cross-linking like with plastisol. Um, so yeah, there, there's lots of information available, but uh, you just kind of have to dig for it. So not to say that it's better than, than uh, other brands or whatever, but what, what kind of ink are you using right now primarily? We use Matsui. Um, and uh, they've been they've been really great to us. Um, they're just very dependable. Um, I think that in the world of water base, they they've definitely been around for a while. They're a Japanese yeah. brand, um, and uh, you know uh, their biggest strength is that they have Jesse Martinez, who is like the best dude. Uh, but it's also their biggest weakness because they only really have Jesse. So like R and Ding and troubleshooting is all through Jesse. Um, you know, we're really fortunate that we have a great relationship with him and with Matsui. So we have like priority access and, uh, you know, other people may not, but, but he definitely makes himself available. Um, and right. especially through the Facebook groups, which is really, really cool. Yeah. I see what, lots uh, of, uh, I see lots of pics of pins and mugs on your, uh, Instagram. Is that, do you do those in house? We do mugs in house. Um, a lot of the enamel pans we outsource to like a, a factory in China, uh, but we've been working with them for so long and we send them so much stuff um, that they're a very dedicated partner to us. Um, with enamel pans, we we're really lucky that we sort of we jumped in in enamel pan manufacturing before it sort of got taken over by everybody and anybody. So we were very very early in on the resurgence of enamel pins and that helped us kind of like understand the, the production loss uh, of it uh, a lot more um, and, and a lot quicker than a lot of other people. So yeah, we're just very, very lucky that time worked out. Uh, but what we do, do a mean? lot of promo stuff. Uh, I was gonna say, what, what do you mean about the production loss? Um, so, you know, when you're scrimping a shirt, like we all know like what does and, and doesn't work and, and there are certain situations that you can kind of like sort of flub and, and get away from um, but when you're working with like metals and enamel and um, you know finite materials like that there are certain rules that you have to follow in order for your pins to be produced like your mock-up or like your customers want right um, so it's just about managing expectations and learning what doesn't doesn't like so detail-wise, for yeah. example, like what kind of detail you can get out of a pin or whatever. Yeah, like what line size you're going to be able to hold or like, you know, are you going to be able to put these two types of metals together or these two types of enamels together? Um, so just like little intricacies of things like that that just come from practice of doing it over and over again. 
What's uh what's your favorite piece of equipment in your shop? Um I I found a company at ISS a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago called D3, and they're a supplier out of California. Um, they work with a lot of companies in Mexico and uh, South America. Um, they had a little two-head shuttle heat press that we use for heat pressing our tags. Uh, I love that thing. It's so awesome uh, and really inexpensive, which makes it even better. <laughs> Andy, you have a two thing heat press. Yeah, we just we ours is a twin station, but ours is manual. I don't know if you're talking about a shuttle. Is it pneumatic or something? So yeah. it is pneumatic, but you manually move it. So um it, it was like this one is specifically meant for like we use it only for tags uh, for internet labels and it works really well. We can do like anywhere from a hundred to hundred and fifty pieces per hour on it. Uh and it just like it just works. There's like one or two things that could break on it that you can easily replace because it's, uh, it's a little heat press, but it just glides on a rail. It's got a little handle you move and it's got a trigger that when it hits the side, it knows to come down. That's it. And uh, <laughs> it's super easy. We like it so much that we went and we bought um, the bigger version of it as well. Uh, and yeah, they're, they just, they just work and they're really simple and uh, you know, they help they help us do a lot of really cool stuff. Which is awesome. Yeah. Our, our tag machine is probably the ROI on it is incredible. I mean, can't even imagine, you know, cause it was, I don't know what it was, $500 or whatever, but we've worn out the pads on it so many times we've used, we use it so much. Yeah. So, I mean, like, uh, it's funny you pick that machine because I don't know we use it so much and I, it's, I overlook it all the time. Really. I don't even think about it. Like if somebody asked me what my favorite piece of equipment is, it's not going to be that, but really it's probably our best, probably our best ROI. And, it just and works. It, it just works. And it's simple. You're, you're right. Like it, I can't imagine it. And even if it broke, it'd be cheap to fix or you could just buy a new one. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we, we paid off both of the D3 heat presses like within a day of having each of them. Um, <laughs> like, it, so it's like, okay, cool. That, that rules. And at this point, like for what we do and the customers we work with, I would say 50% of our goods that we're producing are getting like internet labels and then um, 75 to 80% of them are getting folded and packed. Why have so, you chosen, like, like, why have you chosen to transfer the internet labels instead of, you know, print, screen printing them or pad printing, whatever? Why, why the transfer method? We, we still do direct screen, but typically, like, when it's a large enough uh, order to, to dictate it. I mean, for the most part, most of our orders are, like, 30 to 50 pieces. And so to set up, like, six individual screens, even though they're, you know, they're gang, so realistically, we're talking like three three screens, right? Right, uh, right? To print like three shirts to me is like kind of pointless. So I can set up one screen, I can print, uh, you know, seven pages of, of these transfers, and anybody in the shop can walk over to this machine and do it. Uh, Plus, like, I, I personally think that a transfer tag is the best quality tag. Cause you can get looks, way better it detail. Really it looks way better. It's clean. But yeah. like you said, it's the problem is the quantity. Like you get to a point where you're like, Oh, I'd love to do these transfer, but it just takes forever. Like, yeah, you have to print the, well, before I discovered your fucking wizardry, you have to print the uh, tags and then you have to put powder on them, run to the dryer. Right. And then you have to cut them and then you have to sort them. And then somebody has to stand there and heat press them for however, you know, 10, 15 seconds a piece. 
Yeah. And it's like, yeah, if you were doing 50 pieces or maybe even a hundred pieces, it's worth it. But anything over that, it's like, it's a lot of fucking time standing there in the heat press. And we've had it before where we've had like thousand piece orders that I look at, you know, one of the girls in the shop or whatever. I'm like, Hey, you're going to be doing this tomorrow. And she's just like, I'm sick tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Um, How do you cut your, so you print your sheets. I'm guessing you do it on that, on your Saturn you know, you yeah. and then how do you, what have you found the easiest method of cutting? Hydraulic paper cutters by far the easiest. Uh, we used to have one and it was like 30 years old and uh, it broke like a gasket and we had to trash it, uh, which sucks because like I want a paper cutter so bad now because like we cut them out by, not by hand, but like with a, um, it's like one of those cutters that kind of like slot, it like slides on a, on a track. Um, it works, but with PET, it's very slippery. So like you can only like gang like, or you can only, you know, couple like three sheets at a time. Uh, and if we have to print like 50 sheets and you're sitting there and you have to make how many cuts per sheet, like, you know, nine cuts per sheet, it's like, this sucks. And so that that's something that's like probably the worst, like the worst thing in the shop for anybody. Like everyone hates it, but we all recognize that like it has to get done. Um, so that that's how we cut them out. Um, we have like, this uh, I little, still think hydraulic is better. I agree with you. And I tried to look into like, get a die cut, like, how are we going to do this? You know, or the fastest way, yeah. but I have, um, how we do it is we have this like a little mini pizza cutter, sort of like what you say, you slide yours. Well, we just roll this piece of cu pizza cutter across it Yeah, and we can buy different blades and then storing, uh, you know, because you have all different, um, material content or different, like you said, you have 24 stores. And so we have like these um, tackle boxes, you know, that are labeled on the, on the sides and the top. So if we're going to, we're going to pre-cut all of this for this brand or, or whatever. And for this right. material content, then we store them in these, I get them at Home Depot, these, these tackle boxes. Well, that's how we use, um, we all we use like uh, Ziploc, <laughs> Ziploc bags. Uh, they're, they're not Ziploc bags, but they're like, um, uh, I mean, they're, they're plastic resealable bags. Yeah, we, we uh, use those. A, there was, we use those. Yeah, there's a fulfillment center here in Houston a couple years ago that like went out of business and we went and like, probably like one of my biggest regrets to this day is not just like offering $5,000 for everything in the building, but we went and spent like $1,000 and got a whole bunch of stuff. And so I have just like, I don't know, 100, 150 boxes of different like uh, resealable bags. So we just put them in there and then they get stored alphabetically in a filing cabinet. Yep, we have we so many customers that, that tag stuff um, that maybe will overprint, you know, whatever tags we're printing today, and they may not order for six months, a year, or maybe it's a month, I don't know. But then we can pull them out and then just like... That's the best part about doing the transfer tags is that if you have a customer that orders 50 pieces every, you know, month or whatever, you could just print like fucking 30 sheets yeah. and then store them and then next time that guy orders you're like oh i already have some here already cut ready to go the only thing that gets tricky with that that we've we've run into um quite a number of times especially with like our stores that we that are constantly moving through volume is that like their their size reorders might change so like let's say they place the original order and it's like a dozen of every size well they come back and now they need three dozen large but only 12 small your distribution's like, well, off shit yeah, exactly. And so it's like, well, at what point do we need to start building screens for every size? And we're right back to like where we didn't want to be. I love, I love when they, when you have the, when you've made your screen and you store it and you keep it so you can pull it and then print. 
that all of a sudden now there's a four X mixed in. I was just going to say that they add a size they didn't have before. And you're like, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so like that, that stuff happens a lot too. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, transfers, I feel, I still think are, are king, but you know, we've done a lot of experimenting with discharge and, and HSA, uh, for tags too. And we can print HSA. I think I just posted something, uh, yesterday or Friday about an HSA tag that we printed that like, looks pretty fucking good uh, for, for what it is. Like it rivals a transfer print. And that's just, again, like having the knowledge of how HSA kind of reacts over time and, and what happens when that ink gets exhausted or starts evaporating and starts to become like a little bit more gummy and a little bit more opaque, but still has that soft hand. So um, there are things that, that we've kind of figured out that rival transfers, um, which, which is cool, but they work on t-shirts. They don't work on sweatshirts. They don't work mm-hmm. on nylon jackets. So like there's, there's a lot of, you know, things that you yeah. have to kind of consider too. Yeah, yeah. So do you have, and I've been asking this recently cause it's funny. Cause like some stuff comes up with us randomly talking about a shop trick or hack or something you've done. And then we always get a ton of DMS of people being like, Holy shit. I didn't know that. Um, do you have anything weird that's like that? That's like a, like a trick you've learned that you kind of always use. And it's not like something that's in like a print textbook or anything like that. Yeah. Um, so there's, they kind of go hand in hand, but, um, it's like with adhesive for palettes. So, um, we put like food coloring or food dye in our adhesive. So when we're adhesiving, we can see if there's like any spots on the palette that didn't get like properly. Coated. You missed, yeah. um, so that's really helpful. The same thing like actually that. can kind of go, uh, into, well, again, this is, this is more, um, water-based theory, but we use like two bases for a lot of stuff. And so we have like a base that's slightly tinted blue versus a true white. So we can differentiate like when we're registering things. Um, and then the, the second thing with adhesive is that like water-based adhesive can be screen printed. Uh, and I've posted about it a couple times. Like we use a 280 mesh and like when we are fresh palette tape, especially on, on our oval, our oval is 36 pallets. So like putting water-based adhesive manually on that just fucking sucks. So we figured out that like we can load water-based adhesive into a screen and print it. Just, and by doing that, just a get, big open rectangle? Yeah, like we, we coated the screen, let it dry, we used a piece of cardboard, we exposed it, and then just wash it out. We're not like wasting film or wax or ink or right. whatever. And, uh, and then we just print it and it gives you a smooth, consistent print. Cool. And uh, yeah. Do you have a dedicated, that's, that's really do you have a dedicated palette tape applier person for, for that 36 we, we, pallets? I mean, you're going to, oh my God. We have this set up for it, but no, we don't. We, we, we tag team it, especially um, because we trim our pallets a certain way on, on the rock presses that, um, we, it's just way faster to do with like two people uh, than it is to just use, like we have um, a rock arm set up on one of those action engineering like palette tape roller things. Yeah, yeah. And when we knew we were getting the oval, we're like, we got to get that because like changing palette tape out is going to be a nightmare. But it's not like, even though we have a ton of other palettes we could use, we're not setting up palettes and printing on that while someone else is changing the palette tape. Um, that's, we probably could, but, but we're not smart enough to do that. <laughs> Yeah, you could take all the pallets off and tape them off for us. Or buy, yeah, a, buy yeah. a second set. There you go. Buy 36 additional pallets. 
Uh, only, only 36. Yes. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> do you really? Uh, we, we thought, we thought about it. I mean, with, we bought our oval from a shop in Alabama that bought it, had it for like a month and then went out of business. We have and, a separate set of pallets for each press just for, for fleece. Yeah. That's super smart. We're, we're talking about doing the same thing because Dude, so yes. much of what, what we're doing right now is like 50% t-shirts, 50% fleece. And like right now in the queue, we probably have close to 30 orders that are like that. And it's just like, our t-shirt palettes like rarely get changed the palette tape really? like maybe every like couple months dylan you call me like every night crying help hey please give me a pro tip and i do and now here you held out on me with this extra palette thing for how long now you've, for one you've never given fuck? me a tip ever oh that's all <laughs> i do that sounds like a low blow yeah <laughs> Andy always says anything Andy always says ever says about me on these is always the opposite of what actually happens in reality about I'm how I'm always late and things like that I, I'm always unprepared it's like in your reality it, maybe yeah but I think like I don't know man that's a really good <sighs> so I love the uh palette adhesive food coloring it's really uh, helpful I really like that and then the extra additional set of palettes for for fleece and, and t-shirts there you go Two things I'm doing. Well, yeah, tomorrow. it's just like that's the thing though, is it's just like with us, we use and I've been getting mixed reviews on this, but like we use web glue for hoodies. Um, a lot of people are a lot of people are like, Oh, I, I use, you know, I still use water based for hoodies and we just have to scrub the pallets every like four spins. And to me it's like if you use web glue correctly, I feel like a lot of people just fucking super glue the shit out of the pallet with web glue. They're just like yeah. <sighs> it's like, dude, like lightly like like spider-man the shit out of that palette like you don't have to like go crazy i'll give but you like a, oh go ahead go ahead and finish i'm just gonna Work. say like b before we had separate palettes it was like okay today we have you know three t-shirt orders a hoodie order and then two t-shirt orders that have to go out today or whatever it was like okay well let's do the t-shirt orders and then do the hoodies and then we have to change the palette tape exactly to do more tees it's like fuck that that's stupid because you're spending like a half hour to an hour changing palette tape yeah, to go back to doing what you should have done been doing before. So like, we just bought like legit an exact replica of our palettes, and one is just used for web glue, and one is just used for water based glue. So like, all you have to do is you know you have that block on your palette arm. It's like take them off, take them off, take them off, put new ones on, and then when you have to go back to the same thing, you just take them pellets off again and putting them back on. It's so much faster. But like I, I like said, it. we're using water based adhesive on our palettes. So we're, you know, using them till they get linty, put a little bit of water on them, scrub them down, run them under the flash and they're sticky again. And then we go back to normal. The only time we change our palette tapes is when the palette tape actually starts to bubble up in spots because it's just fucking been there and it's been flashed way too many times. Um, and then we so, change them again. Or if there's like a, a defect or a hole or something random that's going to show up in the shirt, then we change it. Something we experienced is we stopped using uh, web spray, Webit, um, because the way it finished on the inside for yeah. a certain brand, it was finishing wrong. And you know how that glue, well, it'll wash out most of the time, but as a retail-based customer who's coming in, they're going to they're gonna buy a shirt somewhere in a retail mm -hmm. location. They don't want that right. glue in there. And so we, we don't have any Webit anymore. And we, we, cause, and we thought that was the only way, but we changed to Mist. And it's still, it works really well. Um, 
cool. You have to do a few other that's things like different. That's like the worst. The worst what? I was told that that's the worst thing health-wise for you in your shop is a oh. missed adhesive. Probably true. Well, I, it gets I say screen opener is probably the worst, but then, well, then yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. They, uh, they need yeah, to I don't know. That, like, they, they do. Yeah. Um, we like we still use web just because like uh, water base will off gas, especially on fleece. So like when it's being flashed, um, it, it can off gas like above and below. And so we haven't been able to get the water-based adhesive to work super well with fleece. There's the certain whole, yeah. styles, like some independent styles. Sometimes we can work with like Toltex pretty okay. Um, but otherwise it's just, it's just way easier to hold it with, with the web. That's what, uh, that's what I think too. And a, a lot of times hoodies are the most expensive items you're buying yeah. generally. And it's like, it sucks if like you don't have good tack and you go to print and it comes back around and it's all out of fucking registration because it moved or you didn't get glue where it needed to be. So how are you, um, how is it finishing then? I mean, is that web, is the web gone? I mean, does it, you know what I mean? Like why, how, how are you avoiding that web being on the inside of that, that sweatshirt? That uh, we're, we're, we're not, <laughs> I mean, that's right. the short of it. Like, uh, it's, well, like you said, we, hopefully we it washes out. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think we, the biggest thing with that is to just not go careful. crazy. Yeah. I feel like I said, if you don't go crazy, if you're not fucking unloading on the pallet, I, you're not going to have as much transfer onto the actual garment. Um, uh, I did a podcast with Sean uh, from Acme, and that's what he was saying is that he had so many customers that would want to do fleece. They would do like zip-ups, and they were using web glue before, and he said the problem is, is that people with zip-ups, a customer would put it on and want to have like, the shirt underneath shown like fully unzipped and have it like open. He's like, you could see the inside of the hoodie and it had like glue on it and shit. So he was just like, we stopped using it. Well, like I said, they, the, the downfall of that is that you have to scrub your pallets every like couple spins. And I'm yeah. just like, eh. I don't, I don't think in my shop necessarily that's, I don't think it's with, a quality. With the oval, loss, really. it's, with the oval it's it easy because like we have a third station or, or we have a station between the loader and the unloader. So like we, we have, and, and we can scrub it, but like you still need that heat activation to evaporate the moisture. That's right. Cause like when you're scrubbing it, you're, you're releasing the lint that's being held by water and it's still like kind of wet. So like when you roll, when you put that sweatshirt back on, you're not going on to like glue, you're going on to wet, wet glue, which right. can actually sometimes be even worse in, in what we've experienced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Eric, you ready for the Inksoft question? Sure. If you were granted a ticket and you could see any band, past or present, who would it be and what year? Oh, uh, man. It's a very, very difficult question. Uh, <laughs> man, I don't even know. Um, Andy, you go. You know yours and then we'll yeah, come back to Yeah, let, let me think about this. I texted, texted Dylan mine uh, earlier, but, but it's not the real one. So what are you talking, like Goo Goo Dolls? <laughs> I said Backstreet Boys. Dude, don't, first of all, that's don't not knock the real. Goo Goo Dolls. I'm not. They're from your neck of the woods, aren't they? Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That was, a, that was no joke the first show I've ever been to in my entire life. That's awesome. The, uh, whatever song they had on the soundtrack to, the, to um, City of Angels, yeah. it was a great song. That made them but, millions of dollars. Uh, so, Dylan, you go. Go ahead. Uh, definitely Metallica in Seattle in 1989. Hmm. 
I've always booked. said, I've always said to like Chris, who's here that like, if I ever got like a genie with a lamp, that would be one of my wishes is to like, go to that show. Like, you can watch that whole show on, on YouTube. And that's like, to me, it's just like one of the best shows ever. Well, mine is cool. a close in year. Uh, it's 1991 Nirvana. So yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Close. I am. Um, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I feel like I. Uh, I don't. I don't like go and like revel and like stuff in in the past like that too much. Only just because like uh, Val and I are friends with so many like amazing musicians that are like happening now that it's like I've I've been a part of and have seen like some of the most insane shows of like I think I could I could ever think about. Uh, you know, th- there's there's the the big ones though, like uh, like Green Day at Woodstock. I bet that would be pretty insane uh, yeah. in terms of just like how all That's that what I'm thinking of. It's just like nostalgic. Like there's yeah. a lot of other bands I would rather listen to, but like to me that like my dad listening to like Metallica and metal bands growing up and then I hear like those albums or whatever and I feel like I would have loved to have been at that show because it was all the like Metallica albums I like, not like the new Metallica albums that I don't yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like, to me, that was why I was like, hell yeah, I'd like to do that. I, like, like, I don't like the Grateful Dead at all, but I think it would have been awesome to like see them at like San yeah. Francisco and some of those park shows. Like, I, I, I think, think for any, like I think for anybody or any band like that, it's, it's always awesome to like go to a show in their hometown. Like if, it, if I got to go to like, see like Lawrence Arms in like Chicago or like, see, like for us, we go almost every year to like the every time I die Christmas show, which sure. is like fucking amazing because everybody there is from there and it's just like nothing but people on top of each other is that yeah. green day woodstock show is it the throwing mud thing yeah yeah <laughs> yep. pretty 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 wild show for sure but I, I don't know i mean like a lot a lot of the stuff like the the classic rock shows i think in like the 60s and 70s would also yeah. be kind of cool like I, like Zeppelin I, or I like guitars i like uh weird and really loud amplifiers so like like that grateful dead thing like again i don't like the grateful dead but they played with a fucking wall of sound like that would be amazing or there's bands like the jam who are traditionally like a very clean mod type of a band but would play at like 11 on their amps every single time and to me that's like very exciting when you have a very clean non-aggressive band um doing weird things like this so yeah uh i don't have a great answer i'm sorry but uh but any any of the, the those kind of classic things would be kind of awesome. i agree yeah, yeah yeah for sure yep um i have a couple questions that i want to see if all three of us can kind of chime in on because they were actually listener questions like people wanted sure. to just have us answer um first one we kind of talked about a little bit was from shirts canada uh he said our print on demand businesses making a major dent in our screen printing profits. So I thought a lot about this. Um, and I, again, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I really think the only way that you can do print on demand, like correctly, is having a large inventory of SKUs or merchandise readily available for you. Your systems have to be so dialed in to make it work and make it work profitably that the people that can do it, like more power to them. Like that's, you yeah. know, I, I don't know what, what, what do you guys like look at for like other shops? Like, I don't know what, what you sort of like look at other shops. You're like, man, that's cool. Like for me, when I look at shops that are like efficient and clean and organized and have that shit like dialed in, 
that's that to me is like more exciting than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I think shop, to be able to do, sure. yeah, yeah, to be able to do print <laughs> on demand, I think is so so much more challenging and complex than most people realize. Um, that the people that can do it, I'm, I'm definitely in awe. Of. I mean, I know like Redwall is is doing it and they're doing it really well. Um, Stoked on in Vegas, just kind of yeah. pivoted their business and and I you know send Kevin love letters all the time of just like how are you doing this? Like, teach me everything that you guys figured out. But they're, you know, spending how many thousands of dollars building out specific software for it. So it's like, you have to, you have to kind of build, you have to build to it. You can't just be like, I'm going to do it all of a sudden because there's so much that goes into it. In my I opinion. feel like there's, a, I feel like there's another side to this though, too, that's kind of like more how I feel. And I feel like when people think of on demand like that, they're thinking of like the Amazon's, that are doing like DTG sure. and you can get stuff like that. To me, that just makes me feel like I need to focus more on the mom and pop or the um, like customer service driven part of my business where like, it, I feel like a lot of customers come to us because they can talk to us and like get exactly what they're looking for and get walked through the process when Amazon's just kind of like put in your design and uh, it'll be there in two days. Like, yeah. So I feel like to me, that's the other side of it is it's just making me be stronger at like customers want to come to us because they're talking to us instead. But I think to be successful at print on demand, you've got to go to the drive through at Chick-fil-A and poach the person at the window, whoever that is, and offer them double the pay. Because how hard is that job? First of all, they're really <laughs> always friendly and nice. And so uh, the customer service is awesome. And then they have to pull all of their, all that stuff together super fast and get it right every time, you know, like they have to pull the fries and the nuggets and the sauces and the whatever it is all quickly and accurately and then hand it to you. So I don't know, maybe that's, that's the person you need. Chick-fil-A. I was told, I I think, (laughs) I think too that like a a lot of it comes down to just like the, the customers that are going after that, like are not, they're They're not not, our core customers. They're yeah, they're not ours. At some point, at some point in the future, that's going to cross over. We're not there yet. I think it's important for all screen printers to like recognize that like the future is now, um, but it's not fully formed. Yet. So it's like, it's definitely something to pay attention to, but I think in general that technology is, is not, um, it's not there to make it as accessible uh, across the board. I mean, again, much like what I was saying in Dylan, what you were saying for the Amazons, for the, the custom inks of the world, like they have those deeper pockets, they have investors that can help them make that happen is it going to replace screen printing eventually i i think that a lot of a lot of things are going to start going to that digital side but it's not going to fully like erase it in my opinion i went to uh vision 2020 back in uh the fall was at mnr there was this dude up there he was was, i think his business name is next day shirts or something like that sure next day day they're in chicago yeah yeah, so he has a digital squeegee, you know, I think he has two or something like that. And he is, I don't know if it's all next day, like he really does next day stuff, but it's really yeah, quick. Yeah. yeah, so I don't know how. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it goes back to the efficiency of your systems and your, you know, your processes for things. And like, I don't know much about that, that company, but I do know they have that stuff like dialed. And, yeah. you know, with, with a name like that too, there's, 
I think there's that built-in expectation of like, yeah, it's going right. to happen like super fast, but not every right. project is like next day. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's very, I don't want to say it's very limited because I don't know, but I would imagine that there, there are certain circumstances and having that digital squeegee for sure. I and mean, that's stuff that we've thought about a lot. I mean, even in the middle of COVID, like at, at its highest in March, like we were already starting those discussions of like, we print so much full color stuff our life would be so much easier if we had some sort of hybrid solution. And it's like, well, if we had a hybrid solution, now all of a sudden we just need to make two screens instead of 10. And now yep. we can do 12 shirts instead of 50 or hundred. And mixing inks so, and screens. Exactly. And, and so it's like, we're, we're not going to be print on demand per se, but it's like, you can get away with print on demand 12 piece minimum. You know what I mean? And charge like a $50 setup fee for your screens. And then all of a sudden, like, how many more stores can we open? So that's the that's the model or the frame that framework that we're sort of like working towards um, mm-hmm. in cleaning up fulfillment is like a huge part of that. That was one thing I was going to ask you is if you're going to adopt that hybrid technology. Like, so I'm guessing the answer is yes at some point. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm like really down for it. Um, we're kind of sorting out a couple things here before we make a big move on it, um, but it is it is like in our future, and I think that. If, if anything in COVID, like the COVID lockdown for us, like we stay busy the entire time. And a lot of that is because of our fulfillment department and our clients. They were, they were selling like crazy. So we were really lucky, really fortunate. Um, but it just put a lot of things in perspective in terms of like where the future of our business is. And like, I love screen printing and I will keep doing it. But we are pivoting our business to be more of a fulfillment logistics company with the added benefit of having like detailed knowledge of, of screen printing and right. uh, yeah, yeah. printing. Yeah. So yeah, the digital squeegee or the, the rock hybrid will, will play hand in hand in that and just strengthen like what we're doing and help us get our, our orders at the door faster. Yeah, no, I feel the same way. And that's kind of what we did when we bought our new gauntlet was basically to know that within the next like five years or so, we would probably get a digital squeegee as well. Cause it's the same thing. Yeah. Like we do all these prints that are like, you know, nine, 10, 12 colors or whatever. And it's like, think of how many less screens we'd have to do or changes on press or, you know, 12 inks every time you have to mix and all yeah. this other stuff, it, it's going to cut it way down. And it, it, I and feel like, a, again, a lot it's of just what we're tool. doing is, yeah, a lot of what we're doing too is like sim process. So it's not, you know, it's, exactly. a lot of the steps can, can be difficult. And I'd say for me, I get really hung up on that because I'm like, fuck, like we're not, we're not being fast and we're not being efficient because like we're having to sit there and like tweak this like sap or tear three, three screens down of a 12 color job and remake them. Exactly. Uh, but a lot of that is just like sim process learning too, which I, I would say is like another tip and trick too, is that you have to understand that simulated process and, and art separations is a completely different type of screen printing um, that you sort of have to treat very, like not very differently, but you have to understand that there's a lot of different rules with that too. I agree. 100%. And I feel like a lot of that is just like training and yeah. time on nice. trial and error for sure. I feel like a lot of people like think there's like a go-to book for that. And it's not, I feel like a lot of it's feel of like my specific ink handles this way on press and how are these two going to mix together and all this other stuff. And like I said, if you had the hybrid, like you said, if you, if your art department did the steps on this design, they think this is how it's going to turn out. And then you get it on press and something's not just right with the digital, you can like tweak it on the computer and like hit print again. Yeah. When you're doing it screen printing, you're like, fuck my art department has to redo seven screens 
and put them back up and try again. And hopefully this time it works out. And then if it doesn't, and you do it all over. Not only that, because we're all water-based, every screen has to get cleaned out. Not necessarily torn down, but every screen has to get cleaned out. So you do a 12 color job and you're replacing three screens. That's 12 screens that you have to clean on press. Uh, and, and how again, much time, you know, like delay anyway, totally. like you're, right. you're talking totally. about hours. You know? And that's why with the digital, yeah, it's, it's minutes. It's like, oh, let's yeah. just tweak this on the computer and then hit print again. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I will like one last topic on that though, is that I will say it's not, you know, spending some time with like Michelle Moxley and, and mm-hmm. Cody at m and um, because like, uh, you know, we look up to Michelle and, and Cody used to work for Matsui, so we have a good relationship with him. But like knowing like what they're doing, digital, uh, I think gets sold as like a one-click solution, but it's, it's really, it's very far from that. Uh, yeah, there's a lot yeah. more stuff that you have to learn that's not necessarily in the screen printing world. I think it's easier for sure to do complicated stuff with one click, but like, you know, really good printers can make things look really easily. And I think it's the same thing with like the digital squeegee. So you have like masters like Michelle who like her job does it every day on that. Yeah. yeah, yeah like exactly. of course, like things are going to look amazing. Um, and I'll give props to MNR too, like with, with that hybrid, the way that they're sort of like building out their, um, like training programs for everything, which Michelle has a lot to do with. Uh, I think it's like, it's really, really smart because you're basically like reteaching people how to print, uh, which again, there's a lost art, I think that, that is there that a lot of people just don't know about. Yeah, for sure. Um, this is kind of a debate that me and Andy have been going over for a couple months now, but uh, where do you land on your screens? Are you, what kind of screens are you using? What kind of mesh are you using and why? We have used hydro mesh for a really long time, which is like Sati's thin thread. Mm-hmm. Um, so water-based and thin thread work really, really well together. Uh, mm-hmm. I would imagine that Plastisol works really well. I'm assuming you don't use thin thread. Uh, that's, that's maybe why you'd be smiling. But um, yeah, for us, it, it works really, really well. Um, yeah. We switched over to rollers about four months ago, five months ago. Right. Um, because I wanted to be able to control tension better. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> so. so we're both right. Yeah. Uh, so basically my argument is that it's not the mesh that's my problem. Like I do like the hydro mesh. I do like the thin thread stuff. My argument is what is the best method, the best screen? basically not the actual mesh, but like the actual, you know, like fucking frame. Like, is it to go, Andy likes the statics that he gets that are hydro. And then there's the people who use the roller frames. And then there's the people who like the Sherlock's. Well, to me, I personally haven't used them yet, but I think my, the way I would like to go is I would like to use like the Sherlock's to where it's kind of like, I don't need, I feel like with rollers, you need like a dedicated like dude to use the table and like figure them out and know them and baby them and tweak them and stuff. And I I understand that rollers are like the, like the king of like, if you're doing them right, these are like the best ones to use, but I'm talking like the day-to-day dudes in the shop. To me, it seems like a Sherlock would be like, okay, use the hydro mesh panels, whatever. If I need more screens, I'm not ordering screens. I'm ordering just like a bag of mesh panels. And I could so I've used, I've used all three. And so I can definitely speak to, to the reason why we went to rollers and why Sherlock's didn't work for us. Um, statics, I mean, statics are great. They're cheap. They're easy. I mean, 
you can razor blade them if you want immediately after you use them for the first time. And it's not that much more expensive to uh, get them rematched. Uh, like we're big friend, uh, big fans of, of Denver Printhouse and, and I like to consider myself a, a friend of, of Danny's. Uh, and we have this discussion a lot too because like they only use statics where like we switched off of statics. Um, with statics, you have that, you know, that, that point where you have to either razor blade them or get them stretched. You can continue using them, but you're going to suffer for whatever reason because the tension's dropped too low, right? So we were tired of sending our screens up to get remeshed, and there were some places that we used that were really good and some that weren't so good. Um, for a long time, we have been sticking with uh, GSF in Chicago uh, for our static frames, and Frank and his team, like, do a pretty good job, but even in transit from box being like jostled around, it could stretch it to like 24, 25 newtons, which is like a 230 thin thread. That's going to be sort of like its max uh, tension. Even from that jostling around, you know, it may have dropped down a newton by the time you decrease it and get it ready for, for print. Uh, you know, that first print, it might drop you down to 20. And now all of a sudden you're in very dangerous territory of, of where, where how tight your mesh is. So with the Sherlock's, we were like, well, this is the answer because we don't want to go to rollers. There's so much babysitting, like you said. You're bit, where you're you know, talking now is where I'm at. So we, we went to Sherlock's and like, first of all, Sherlock doesn't, you can get Sati thread, but they don't, they much prefer to work with Mirakami, uh, which is fine. We, we just have a good relationship with Sati. And so we like to sort of kind of keep it all within that family. Um, but what we started realizing is like, well, the panels are more or less like the same cost as like getting a frame remeshed and they don't really hold tension any better. Uh, it just gives you the ability to like, to retension it one time uh, before you have to scrap it. Cause like you have two, like Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, but you have like two places you can move those panels out, right? Right. So, so we were doing that, but we were like, you know, we're still like, we're not able to control our tension as much as we want. And what we found like this year, honestly, uh, is that like, we need all of our screens to be within like one or two newtons of one. And so like, if we have a base that's at 18 newtons, a highlight color that's at 24 and another one that's at like 15, our registration was suffering from it because it's all, all over the place, right? When, right. when our CTS is coming, it's, it's shifting the mesh just a little bit because of the way that the, the pusher frame or, or the, uh, the drum is like pushing the mesh. So there's all sorts of little things like that that people like don't think about. And so we were like, fuck it. We're just going to go to roller. So that like, if we notice a screen is, you know, has dropped two newtons, then like, we're just going to go and tighten it back up ourselves. Um, and really like, as long as your frames are clean with roller frames, there's not really too much babysitting. I mean, like you can break up static frame or a Sherlock frame just as easy as you can as a roller. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, yeah. And once once they work hard, and they just sort of stay where they are. But at least you have the ability with rollers to tension them back up higher, so that they can get work harder at the correct level. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. That's worked for our shop. And no, that, I makes, know a lot that of makes a lot of sense. I just right. I'm just debating because my problem is is I'm not like near anything. Like I'm not near a place that stretches well. I have sent stuff out to stretch before. It, it, for me, it was, at the time, it was expensive to send them out. Like realistically, yeah. the cost, it's cheaper for me to buy all brand new screens than it is for me to buy restretches because I'm shipping yeah. there and shipping back. And 
like I said, I just didn't know if I would wanted to go the whole roller frame because of the table and like tweaking them. And then, cause my thing is, it's like, yeah. I'm not out in the shop. I'm, I'm at my desk in the office. So to tell somebody like, Hey, you're going to have to learn this whole skill, figure out how to use this table. All this other stuff is kind of like, they're like, Ooh. Um, but I mean, it's same thing here, but we basically made it. So Tyler, our screen guy and RJ, who does a lot of our reclaim, we're like, look, like we're going to do this because like, we're tired of like throwing money away. And we feel that like, this is going to give you guys even more control and responsibility of like what your jobs are uh, and, and even more job security. You can like, learn how to do this correctly. Right. And no, it makes sense. They were, yeah. they were all about it. Um, you know, with that being said, like, go ahead, Amy. I go, you know, I'm sorry, you go ahead and finish. I, I was just going to say, I mean, like, I've seen amazing work on fucking wooden frames with, you know, 80 mesh. Oh, yeah. So it's like, who, who cares? Like, it doesn't matter. Whatever mm-hmm. works in your shop is what so, works. I don't, that's what I don't I was think gonna, there's a method that's better. That, that's what I was going to probably, that's where I'm, after this conversation is where my head's at, is that I think every shop's different. You know, and so um, maybe you don't say that to me when we're on the phone, just me and you. You're like, I'm superior. You're a fucking ant under my boot. (laughs) You piece Uh, of shit. (laughs) I always love and support you, Dylan. You know that. Um, So, but, but, but real for real, you know, the, the ultimate, I think everybody knows the ultimate is a roller frame because of what you just said. You can retention it as many times as you want. Um, and, and get the highest tension and maintain the highest tension and also um, get within whatever tension you want from, from screen to screen, which, like you said, is really important with registration. But I guess it depends on the work you're doing, you know. And so in our shop anyway, sure. we changed everything uh, over the past year, a little over a year to Hydro. And uh, we love it. You know, it changed so much of what we do, um, whether it's the, you know, squeegee pressure, squeegee sp- speed, single stroke versus double. This is plastisol-based stuff and not, not, not yeah. water, of course. And so um, we don't have registration issues. Our, we get them, in fact, from Frank GSF. And you're right, you're pretty on the money. Uh, I even sent my meter to him so we can calibrate meters. Yeah, which uh, so that I know when they, the screens arrive here and they're restretched where they are, and you're on the money. It's between 24 and 26, depending on your mesh count. But uh, and then they relax a little bit um, over your first print run or whatever as you as you use them a little. And so, uh, but we found they all are within a certain range of a couple. Maybe sometimes it's maybe four, but um, that doesn't hurt us and our on press. It's rare it does, I should say. And when it falls below, like we, like you said, we cut it out and send it back up and, and get a new yeah. one. Usually that has a ton, like a shit ton of prints on it though. So, um, uh, or sometimes the mesh just pops because it decides to, <laughs> you know, right. like just sitting on, sitting on the rack and, and it, you look at it wrong or whatever. But I think and that I would say that the virus classes and like the virus class and half to a mastery class too, mm-hmm. like they don't necessarily talk about, well, virus talks about thin thread because it is a little bit better for, for water base, but like, it goes into like the theory of like of those mesh openings and sort of like, you know, mm-hmm. standard thread and, and thin thread and sort of how that all plays into things. And, and like with rollers too, there's also kind of like um, this discussion that I have with, with some of, some of the, the old timers, if you will, when I was trying to make that decision, if we should move over to, to, to rollers, because we knew we were going to be using thin thread. And for the most part, we're using 157s and 230s. Um, that's that's pretty much almost all we use. That's, that's all like, we use too. It's it's yeah. 156 and 230. That's it. We we use the lower meshes for like opacity reasons with HSA. Uh, basically, like so we don't have to use 200 bases, so we're getting more of a deposit. But 
you know, if it maxes out at 24 newtons, uh, then with a roller frame, like roller mesh, mesh that's made by Newman, is like high tension, like 50 newtons. You know what I mean? And it's to open up the mesh knuckles to give you the same deposit that you would get with thin thread. So like, I was sort of stuck where I was like, well, are we chasing our tail going after these really expensive frames to only hold like 22, 23 newtons, when really they're meant to hold like, you know, 40 to 60 newtons, depending on your mesh. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, that, that, that's also, I think, something that can, that can be discussed. Um, yeah, you're saying you're saying because you're saying because the the hydro mesh isn't meant or designed to to be stretched over twenty six or seven. Yeah, at, at, at two thirty the two thirty mesh for for example. Yeah, I think two thirty is like twenty five max tensions. Like twenty three, twenty four is a sweet spot. Um, obviously, the lower meshes can go a little bit higher, but like even like a, an eighty mesh that we use for like foil adhesive, like I think that that probably tops out that you know, 28 newtons, um, but we try and get all of our screens between 22 and 24 newtons. So the primary reason you got it isn't to, isn't to get crazy high tension. It's, no, it's, it's mainly just controllability. To, yeah, controllability and a retention. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Makes sense. So the moral of the story is who gives, nobody knows and- Someone's always gonna print better than you anyway, <laughs> so it doesn't really yeah. matter. We should just all stop printing then because there's always yeah. going to be someone better. I think the that. moral of the story is DTG, <laughs> Dylan, like you said you're converting your shop to. is DTG. I'm going <laughs> to fucking fly out to you and stab you in the face <laughs> right now. Um, well, it was great talking to you. The only time I ever talked to you be before is we ran into each other in Long Beach. Yeah, um, just a quick minute. So. Yes, yeah, for a quick minute. Yeah. Who, knew, who knew we were about to, to come into um, a crazy year? But yeah. uh, how's but, it been for you guys this year? Has it been like, have you been busy or has it been like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do? Like what's going on with you guys? Both of those things okay. <laughs> for, for me. Uh, initially it was what I'm fucking going to do, but then, but now we're, we're jammed up for sure. So feels good. Yeah, yeah, that's we, cool. We've been pretty busy almost the whole time. Um, it's actually just starting to slow down a little bit now, but I think that's just the normal, like back to school. Everybody's like trying to figure their shit out, but, but yeah, we've been, we've been great the whole time. The only time we were really slow was like the first, like two weeks, two, three weeks of like when COVID first happened and everybody was like thinking the world was ending. Yeah. Um, but luckily that was the exact time of when we were getting our new press and dryer put in. So oh, cool. uh, that worked out really well. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, Dylan, what's for dinner? Well, yeah, it's, it's been pretty good. Uh, I ate two dinners tonight, and it was before we did this podcast. Hmm. Um, I spent the last two days painting the offices, and then I had a couple people here helping me today, so I bought them pizza. And then as soon as I got home, my wife's like, oh, I made chili. <laughs> I was like, fuck oh, me, I'm so full right now. And then I ended up eating some of that because she made it, and I didn't want to make her feel bad. Eric, what's for uh, dinner? Uh, I think we're going to uh, get some Chinese food, I think. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's the point. So. Dude, speaking of Chinese food, I get it locally from this this place, like right in town or whatever, and I always get steamed dumplings. And I feel like I had steamed dumplings yet last night, and I feel like they didn't steam them. Like when I bit into them, they were just like mush, and I was like, you mean they microwave them or something? Like, I don't know what, what they mean? did. Like, obviously they probably pre-make them and then they just like steam them and give them to you. 
but like I think that they just knew you were coming to get them, so they oh. just found the ones that were in the trash and gave them to you. I think that might have been the case because they were just yeah. like they were like slightly warmed, <laughs> wet noodle meat sacks, and gross. they weren't like delicious dumplings. It's gross, gross. <laughs> He's like, that's gross. I don't want to talk about yeah. that anymore. So, what's the best place for everybody to check all your shit out? Instagram oh, website. Just Instagram. Yeah, Instagram, Night Owls Print. That's, uh, that's the ones where we put all the, the pictures of stuff. stuff all, the, all the good stuff. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Eric. I appreciate it, dude. Yeah, it thank fun. you for having me. Yeah, thanks, I yeah. appreciate it. And, Keep uh, in touch, man. Super fun. Real. Yeah.